Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is one more time, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo dot co. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! Oh, my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to two-man power trip. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Well, look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that, and every kid up, they knew they could kick the shit out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute, you weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. You people tend to generalize or stereotype people like me. Because we're of Arab descent, we are singled out. No one will get away with treating us like this anymore. We are Arab Americans. And if you don't give us the respect that we demand, then I will beat it out of anyone who gets in my way.
them both. I want them in a handicap match. I have to pick a tag team partner. I'm making a tag team match. I don't want a tag team match. No partner, no match. When I think about Muhammad Hassan and Davari, the first thing that comes to my mind is how much I love this country. If I have to pick a tag team partner, I'm going to pick somebody that feels as passionately about this as I do. Here I am, on my knees, asking you for one favor. MPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Michael, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and, of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher. And, of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling.
Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, J.P. John Paz, and on today's show, we're welcoming in the former WWE superstar and producer, a former TNA X Division champion, and a UWN star. He is Mr. Sean Devari. Sean, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. We had you on a couple of years ago. You and Ken Anderson were on together, which was awesome. But what have you kind of been up to? What's what's going on in your world? Oh, man. like It's kind of weird. I guess I don't know since the last time I talked to you, lots changed. I guess most specifically, like, since this pandemic, uh, I got let go with the COVID cuts from WWE uh, as a producer. Prior to that, I've been working with them since like, the end of 2018 uh, on the road. I think a road agent or producer, they call it now. Uh, but since I got let go for the COVID thing, I've really just been getting back in the swing of things. I've been really fortunate that everybody that's been booking me that runs like a television product uh, has also, you know, kind of been double booking me. Like I've been able to work as a wrestler and I've also been able to work as a producer, which is kind of like, it's cool for me because right now during the pandemic, like work is, work is very limited. So like the opportunity I have to, you know, earn more money is always fantastic. And it's also cool just getting to try that skill set out with different wrestlers. Like, I've only been a producer for the WWE, so I've only produced their talent uh, in their system the way they like it done. But since since uh, since I've been let go, I've been able to go to like producing work for MLW for their new TV restart. This just been I think it just started airing like a couple weeks ago. I was able to wrestle on those shows and work as a producer, uh, and then like you know back with Impact Wrestling. Um, Got the more brought me in as a wrestler, but he's also having me produce as well. I'm actually kind of doing more producing for Impact Wrestling right now than than, uh, than I am in the ring. You know, Scott's actually been. We're, we're trying to work out like the perfect balance between the two, but like it's just really cool to be able to try that skill set uh, with a bunch of new talents uh, that I didn't get an opportunity to. I've only done the production work in WWE. How do you kind of get into that role? I mean, obviously, you know, you're suited for it, but how do you get into it? Like, how do you get talked into the, hey, we want you as a road agent. You know, we, we want your producing matches as well. Yeah, it was something that it caught me completely out of left field. Like, uh, in the middle of 2018, at some point, they asked me to go to the PC as, like, a guest coaching thing. And I, and I you know, did that and everything. And at one point, they asked me, like, just me and two other wrestlers to go, like, in the middle ring and, like, coach in there which was very weird. I didn't get it, but I think later I realized that, you know, Triple H or someone in Stanford must have been watching remotely on camera, you know, what I was doing or how we were working or whatever. And I thought maybe, like, they might be interested in bringing me in as a coach at the PC. And then I, I really don't know how the conversation went and what directions behind the scenes that I wasn't a part of. But then a few months later, uh, Hunter offered me the job as a producer Thing. They want to pretty much double up on producers. They want to have a separate team for Raw and a separate team for SmackDown, like they do with the writers. And then uh, when they did that, they brought an influx. They pretty much doubled their roster of producers, and then I was assigned to the SmackDown crew. That's kind of one of those interesting things. It's like, how do they select you? Like, where does it come from? But they were probably, you know, I guess they had their eye on you. They were watching you. They wanted to see, almost test you a little bit at the Performance Center. I think it's one of those roles that, and it's something that I've kind of said my whole career is like, I feel like as a pro wrestler, like, like it's comparable to baseball, but I'm like a shortstop. I can kind of do anything you need me to do. And if you kind of look at the people that become producers, they seem to be those type of wrestlers that are just as comfortable working as a baby face as they are a heel. They're just as comfortable doing a singles as a tag. They're just as comfortable doing ha ha gaga and Shakespeare as they are doing like a false finish heavy, you know, 10 minute go home, wrestle, wrestle match. 
So you look at those guys like Sanjay Dutt can do all that. T.J. Wilson can do all that. Jamie Noble can do all that. You know, when you see the guys, I think it's versatility. Versatility seems to be the best tool of a producer. Uh, and it, it seems, I've seen some people try the role and maybe not be very good at it. And it's because maybe they're, you know, really, really, really good baby faces, but they kind of can't do much else. Much else doesn't click with them. Or maybe they're really, really good wrestle, wrestle, wrestle wrestlers, but they're really bad at the ha-ha and gaga. And they might have, like, you know, uh, a little person's match or a girl's bikini match or something that they can't wrap their head around that kind of concept because it might not be the skills that they have in their toolbox that maybe like a short stuff does. It's one of those things where I don't know if everybody kind of understands the importance of a producer to match. Just kind of explain the role because I feel like so many people almost overlook it. Like, oh, they, they don't, you know, have that much to do, but they really have a ton to do and a ton of responsibility. Yeah, so I can speak specifically about, like, you know, how WWA or Impact uh, Impact Wrestling does stuff. But, like, um, it, it also is case by case. It's really not, you know, like, I, I kind of feel like if you're a referee, kind of your duties for every match are kind of the same. Or, or, but for a producer, it really, really is case by case. There are some talents that need a lot more hands-on with the actual assembling and putting together of the match. And then there are some talents that they don't need that at all. And then maybe what you are is more like an editor. They'll kind of spit what they have by you, and you can be like, oh, maybe this could be better here, and if you do this here, you can omit that there. You know, it's a little less collaborative on putting together, but the duties that are always the same is, uh, and I'll speak specifically about TV days because uh, live events or house shows are completely different, and, and they might be the way of the dinosaurs, so it might be irrelevant, but um, the way TV works is we get there early before call time and we have a production meeting with Vince and all the writers and everything. And they go over the show and they say what they're looking for. And the producer's job is the segments that are involved with the talent is to execute the creative. So whatever that script says, whatever is on the paper, it's like our job to make that come to reality uh, as close to the script as we possibly can or are capable of doing or are able to do. And that might be from rehearsing with the talent what they're doing. That might be getting to the ring early and, and kind of deciding, oh, if you do that over here, we can shoot it from this camera that way. Or maybe if you do that over here, I can capture it from this camera better. You know, little things like that. Uh, then again, that part of actually assembling the match, it might be different based on who you're working with. A brand new NXT call-up might require way more. I think you should do it there and maybe do it like this and less like that because that's how this man likes it. Whereas when you're working with Randy Orton, Randy will say, I'd like to do this over here, and you just kind of take a note of it so you know which cameraman you could tell to catch that, you know, the way Randy would like. And when the actual show is live, and we're actually in the gorilla position on the headset, we pretty much communicate with the production truck, Vince McMahon, and the referee, or whoever's in Vince's chair. Sometimes it might be Bruce Pritchard or Paul Heyman or whoever's show it is, Road Dog. Um, those are pretty much the people you communicate with and you use the referee as a conduit to communicate with your talent, whatever you need to communicate with your talent. You use the switch to speak with the production truck to kind of let them know how things are going or how it might play out. So they can always be like a step ahead of you for, you know, music cues, lighting cues, commercial cues. Uh, Hey, they're about to do a dive over here. Make sure there's a cameraman available to catch that, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and then the last switch to Vince or whoever's in Vince's chair is usually just kind of like Q&A. Like every once in a while, Vince might jump in your ear and say something and you just reply to him. Uh, but there's very little actual communication with the 
person and in, in sitting in the you know director's chair, that one is usually just if they have a question or a suggestion or something, you know, Vince might say to me, like, uh, this guy's punches look really bad, and I might have to buzz the referee and be like, hey, tell so-and-so to lay his shit and, you know, punch a little hard or make that stuff look better. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. It's not really – there's less conversations with me and Vince and more conversations with Vince telling me what he wants. That is so interesting because it seems like there's so much on your shoulders and on your plate. So what happens if the wrestler doesn't do exactly what you kind of went over? Is the wrestler in trouble or are you going to be in trouble? That happens all the time. And again, it's a case by case thing. It's not they're, they're, It's a very fluid art form. If you want to call it that or very fluid uh, TV production, nothing is set in stone. So depending on how, when, why it could be totally different things. It could be as far as like, Oh, it's a no big deal. They, we said do blah, 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 and they did blah, blah, blah instead. Or it could be a huge thing where it's like, damn it, Vince said he wants that, and he didn't do it, and now he's in big trouble. You know, but, but very rarely it's that dramatic. It's, it's, it's a very fluid thing. Pretty much every segment of the show has a piece of business or should have it by the end of the segment, what did you want the audience to think, feel, or do? And no matter what happens in the segment, if by the end of the segment you've accomplished those goals, kind of the route you use to get there is irrelevant. And it's supposed to be body slam, drop kick, dive, and you do drop kick, body slam, dive. Like, who gives a shit? As long as by the time the segment's over, people know this Sunday at SummerSlam, I have to spend $40 to watch so-and-so wrestle so-and-so. So when you're kind of in that chair, and is it next to Vince, or is it like on the other side of Vince, or like where, where is he sitting compared to the producers? Uh, it's, it's like one... It's like almost like a desk. It's like we're all like within five feet. I mean, I guess I don't know what it's like now during the pandemic. I don't know if they've changed things up. It's just like a small road table, and it's usually the producer, the timekeeper, and then Vince and the person running the show right next to him, or if Vince isn't there, the person that's running the show is sitting in Vince's chair. Is it intimidating to deal with him at all, or is he kind of easier? Because you always hear stories like, oh, he's, he's going to yell at you, or he's going to tell you what's wrong and stuff. But is he that intimidating, or is he easier to deal with than is kind of the narrative that's out there? No, he, he definitely can be intimidating, but it's one of those things that that's just a communication style. Like, he communicates when he's confused or whatever, maybe by like yelling or screaming. But that uh, doesn't, I mean, I'm sure he yells and screams when he's mad too. Kind of the way he talks. Like, I'm not joking you. There's been times where he might yell and scream at someone, and before the segment's over, he's already yelled and screamed at the next person, and he's forgotten or doesn't even care about the first one previously. But it's because he wasn't actually bent out of shape about it. You know, if you're really bent out of shape about it, you would probably not forget and remain mad about it. But it's just the way he communicates in a live environment, I think. And he definitely doesn't communicate that way, like in the production meetings and stuff. The production meetings, he just, it feels like a classroom. You feel like a student sitting in class and he's the teacher up front. I think maybe just like on a headset while you're live and in production. It's, I mean, I even get jazzed up when I'm live. Like if things are going good and the match is rocking, like I can get super excited. So I can understand that something, you know, fell apart. I guess I've been fortunate nothing of my stuff has ever fallen apart. So I guess I could answer that question better if it didn't yell and scream at me one time. But I have had him yell at me as a talent before, and it's just its just the way he communicates. If he yells at you and screams at you about something you did that he didn't like, and you're booked in the exact same position the next week, chances are he wasn't really bad. 
as far as kind of that role, is it a collaboration with creative or it's literally they tell you something and then you're passing it along or are you able to put in your own input and change it as you go? Uh, everybody's allowed to put in their input. Like, every, like literally the guy that sets up the ring, is, if he has the opportunity to share his thoughts with Vince, like he's very open-minded to listening. It doesn't mean he's going to use your idea or go with right. it. But no, we, we have, I would say the producers have just as much say as the talent does, as anybody does. Like a good idea is a good idea. We're not a part of any of the creative that goes on in Stanford, for example, like while in the middle of the week, while all of that's going on, like we're not, or I should say, at least I'm not, I can't speak for like higher up agents like Michael Hayes and Johnny Hayes and stuff, but like the standard producer wasn't involved with that conversation. So pretty much we just got the script right before we got to the arena and then we would just go through it. And if there's something that was a glaring thing that stood out, you know, we could send our feedback in via email to all the writers and stuff or bring it up in the production meeting. But at the end of the day, it's Vince's show. He creates a show that he thinks is best. And whoever gives him the idea, be it a producer or a writer or a talent, if he thinks it's a good idea, he's going to use it. And if he doesn't think it's a good idea, he's not going to use it. As far as kind of him changing stuff, there's been a lot of stuff out there recently that he's changing stuff on the fly and people get there, they think it's one thing, and then right before the show gets changed again. Were you ever kind of experienced any of that kind of stuff where it's a lot of changes right even up to showtime? Yeah, all the time. And, and, and that goes back to like, you know, 2004 when I was a talent. It's not um I don't know if maybe it's just like news to like other people, but this kind of stuff has been happening forever. Like it's not uh, maybe the frequency of happening or maybe the time that I've been away from WWE, they got it more regimented and structured when I wasn't there, but it's, it's, it feels about the same as always. It is hectic. It's just live television and you are producing more hours than ever. So, you know, I, I guess I can't speak for right now, so I have no idea what it's like, but for my time there, it wasn't like my, I was there for all of 2019 and it didn't seem any more wild or turbulence than, any year out there is talent. Some days the show, they hammer out draft one or draft two or draft three, make there, and some weeks draft nine, draft ten, make there. It's just, it didn't seem to really have any rhyme or reason to it. At least, at least I didn't seem to find it. Just some weeks, shows ran like clockwork, and some weeks the script wasn't done until five minutes before doors open. Wow, it's interesting kind of it. You know, like you said before, it's kind of a case by case thing where maybe one week is good, one week is bad, but that is interesting. And it's got to be maybe a little stressful for the performers because if, if you think it's one thing and they change it, or, you know, you might not be as ready as, as you could have been, or maybe you didn't nail the, the performance as well as you could have if, if you were more prepared. I don't know. It's one of those kind of iffy things to, to me, anyway. It, no, it, it's one of those things where it, it depends on the type of talent, or I shouldn't even say employee or the creative people or the announcers or whatever, like there's some people that like, and it doesn't even happen with people I've wrestled with. Uh, some people like just that structure and knowing exactly what's going on. And there's some people that are much better at just like winging it and reaction. And you have to have that comfort or confidence. I, I think it's less confidence and more comfort. You have to just have that comfort with, well, we just got to do it. Like, just, you know, we're going live on air at seven. So we got to do something. And there's some people that that type of thought process like melts them down because they like structure and regimen. I've had times where like, you know, you'll be go out to wrestle a guy and, you know, 10 minutes before you're up, they go, Oh, it's a tag match. Now we're adding this guy and this guy. And some people will just go, Oh my God, Oh my God, we're up in 10 minutes. What are you doing? 
And they're like, okay, well, let's just, let's just wing it. we got two more guys now. Let's just have this match and see what happens. And, and depending on the type of person you are, or talent, or employee on the creative side, if you are more fluid and flexible in WWE specifically, it'll always be your friend. You'll never be too bent out of shape. But if you're someone that really thrives on structure and punctuality and we discussed this, so this is what we're doing and this is the plan and we're going to stick to it, I can totally see it's an extremely difficult environment. How much role do you play in the actual like style of the match? You know what I mean? Like the actual what's going to happen in the ring and, and the moves and all that stuff. Does an agent play any role to that? Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's what I was talking about earlier where, again, that one's case by case based on who you have. Like with some people, you're more collaborative. With some people, you're more directive. Uh, with some people, you have to give them more input because you got some from like a production meeting, be it from Vince or a writer or something. It just it just really depends. It's like I'm a, I know I'm saying this over and over again, but like there is no formula to like pro wrestling in general. Like in the same token that you know Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels can have a 60 minute classic, Mick Foley can put a sweat sock on his hand, or Scotty Duhati can do the worm, and 20,000 people go ape shit. Like there really is no rhyme or reason to how this works, nor do you have any sort of uh, playbook or like a formula that says, oh, this is how you make it work, or this is how you make it successful. So with, with some talents, you know who they are and what they do, like uh, Daniel Bryan or Seth Rollins, when I work with those guys, it's way, way less my input and more them telling me what they're looking for and me figuring out the best way to capture it with the production truck. Then with somebody, maybe an NXT call-up, or if we're using like an extra in a dark match, you know, an independent guy that I don't know or we're not too familiar with your skill set, when you have a less experienced person like that, uh, you might be more hands-on uh, showing them how to do things. They might not have the experience yet to know how to properly work television or properly work cameras and stuff like that, so you have to kind of tell them. And then when you do that, sell this way so this camera can see your face. And when you check out, roll that way because if you're in this corner, then the hard camera can see you better. You know, like it might be a little bit more like that just because they don't have that experience yet. How about like certain guys working with certain agents? You know, like the Orn Anderson always says he was Cena and, you know, Cena was him and they were, it was like his guy. Did you have a guy, or, or it was much more like free flowing, where it's not the same guy all the time? Uh, I didn't have like a guy, but 205 was kind of my show because 205 and Alive would go on after SmackDown, and pretty much if you're done with SmackDown, you could leave the arena and go back to your hotel and do whatever. But because my little brother wrestled on 205, I would always stay after and watch 205 anyways, and then he would be done and go to the hotel. Because of that, I was always the agent on 205 so the other guys could go home because I was going to be at the arena anyway so the show was over. Uh, so I loved working with all those guys. Um, but, but no, I, I don't, I, that's really just kind of the top, top-level players. Like, like mo, most of Roman Reigns' matches worked with Michael Hayes. Like, a couple times I worked with Roman Reigns has been because I was working with Michael Hayes that day and, you know, Michael does Roman's matches. Uh, but as, as far as me specifically, other people I could think of, um, I know, like, T.J. Wilson does a lot of the women. They're very comfortable working with him, I'm sure, through, you know, being married to Natty and them all being friends and stuff. Like, T.J. seems to have the women more than uh, other producers. But, no, I, I can't really think of, you know, I didn't have a guy anyways, but I did love working with the 205 guys. That was that was probably some of the most fulfilling uh, producer I got to work I got to do uh, 
more so than like Raw and SmackDown. And what was it like working with your little brother? Well, I didn't work his matches. I didn't do his matches. I always did two, two or three, two or five matches. But I would never do his matches. I, I, I don't. I think it's kind of like a conflict of interest. And even though it kind of isn't, you know, we would both totally be professional about it. He just don't want to be the, you know, on the table like, oh, let's. Sorry, his big brother's age, and then he's winning strong with the finish. Like, no surprise, surprise. Like, you, you know, you didn't want, you know, insecure minds to even connect those dots. So they just kind of kept us away from working with each other. I guess that could be pretty smart in, in certain aspects, just just to avoid any sort of heat, even if it's make believe. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's that's totally what it was, and it wasn't even anything that I think was like um, was like a hard rule or something. I think Johnny just kind of Johnny's the guy that uh, assigns the matches to producers, and I think he was just smart enough to figure out like, let's you know, here's one fire we can put out before it even starts, and let's just have a different agent do the Devari, you know, let's have Devari do different Devari. So were you surprised at the COVID cuts? And obviously the pandemic kind of, you know, threw a, uh, you know, a monkey wrench into everyone in the whole world's plans. But were you surprised at the release and, and the COVID cuts? I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't. Of course it was shocking. Like, you know, anytime stuff like that happens, it's like, it's like, it's shocking. It takes you back a bit. But, like, it's not, it's not the type of thing that's impossible to wrap your head around. Like, I live in Las Vegas, for example, and I'm watching these casinos, like, the entire economy is just like dying, dying from a casino running 30,000 employees a day to, you know, reducing, you know, letting off 20,000 employees and the 10,000 that are remaining are furloughed. And there's, you know, 50 different casinos doing it all at one time. Just seeing the way it's happening around the world and like the way unemployment is like clearly hitting like new highs more than ever, like, it was shocking when it happened, but now that there's some hindsight and everything to it, like this is just a global, every business is going to be downsizing. And, and if it's not now or it hasn't happened yet, it might be coming before, you know, there's a, a rectification or a solution or a correction to this pandemic. Once this pandemic's figured out and once it's, you know, something that we look at in our rearview mirror, I'm sure things will change with, you know, with the size of corporations um, growing and stuff. But, even huge companies like Disney letting 25,000 employees go in a crack and, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's not as shocking as it was. It's kind of like, Oh, Holy shit. Like not kind of shocking at first. And now it's kind of like, well, you know, 11 million unemployed Americans. I don't really feel like I'm like a woe was me type thing, you know? Yep. uh, For sure. And it seems like, and you kind of mentioned it before, they might not even be running house shows anymore. They might be doing less shows overall so i mean they might obviously need less agents if you're going to run less shows right yeah well i have i have a gut feeling uh it's just going to be no more live events like i, I have a feeling eventually wwe will just be in production you know non-stop like they kind of already are just wednesday doesn't tour but like imagine if wednesday goes on the road when the pandemic's over they'll just keep the trucks moving all week trucks move from monday's arena to tuesday to wednesday's arena to friday's arena and then after friday they drive to whoever owns going to be next and there might even be opportunities for smaller little productions in between. But I have a gut feeling every every time WWE goes on the road, it's going to somehow benefit uh, like a television deal. Like I don't see any more just events for the fact of let's make some ticket money. I think every event is going to have like it doesn't matter how many tickets we sell, the TV deal behind this event we're already in the black. The ticket money is extra. 
Yeah, it seems like that is kind of like the way to go. Because right now, if you look at their profits and stuff, I mean, record profits all from TV deals. They haven't been running outstanding live shows. So it's TV deals with some Saudi Arabia money and stuff like that. But it's almost like, wow, pandemic kind of set up this this um, kind of, I don't even know how to say, but like they kind of set it up for this formula of, of WB, of the way of making money without actually having fans in the building, which is insane to think for a pro wrestling show. No, absolutely, and, and I think I think it's I think it's uh, across the board with uh, you know public gathering, ticket selling events. You're seeing how virtual concerts are making money. You're seeing how empty football arenas and empty NBA games are making money. Like I think this pandemic has forced people that were in the business of selling tickets to figure out how to generate money in other ways. And one thing that also fast forward all that is because of the pandemic, I think the adoption of like online streaming and stuff like that is growing at an exponential rate with people just consuming their media any way they can be it on their TV or their iPad or their laptop or phone or whatever. And I think as WWE further figures out how to monetize uh, in that way, kind of like the music industry has learned how to monetize from streams, that's the way that they're going to be able to offset, you know, maybe the lack of interest in the physically buying a ticket and going to an arena or even possibly increase revenue from, making the way they make money via streaming equivalent to like a TV deal. Do you think people say, oh, it's cold hearted. They're releasing people during COVID and they're making money. Do you kind of just take, take it as, okay, this is a business. This is how they have to be. And they have shareholders, thing like that. Or do you take it personally? Like a lot of people do and say, oh, you know, you, you release people during a pandemic. You guys, you know, you guys are the devil. Like which way do you kind of go on it? I can't, I can't speak about like other talents or other sort of situations or whatever, but like just for me specifically, like I think a lot of people, because I'm so young, like I think people forget like how long I've been in the wrestling business. Like when I started in like 1999, by the time I was a few years in, like I literally had options and opportunities of possibly going to like WWE, ECW or WCW was like very potential, you know, possibilities of future. Like, I've been around a long time and only in the last few years have they kind of been nice to wrestlers. Like they've always treated us like shit. We've always been <laughs> treated like dog shit across the board from every promoter tells you how much you suck and you're worthless and you're not worth the, you know, what are you doing here? Why do you even work here? Like that happens all the time. And it feels like in the last few years, because of transparency in the world, just every business has had to be a little bit more gentle, a little bit more polite, a little bit more nice. Like, I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum. The last few years, I've just been blown away at how nice and accommodating the wrestling business is. I'm like, this is like, I, I, you know, and I, I might just be because I had that kind of PTSD of a time where I felt like it treated us like circus animals, but now it's just like, oh, man, you guys get time off when you're hurt? That's amazing. It is funny because if you think about wrestling, and I've been, you know, I've been a fan for a long time, and I'm just thinking about, wow, didn't Steve Austin get fired by a FedEx while he was injured? Like, didn't this person, you know, you hear all these, like, horror stories about, and these are big-time guys. I mean, this isn't like, you know, some random wrestler. I mean, you're talking about big-time guys getting cut for anything, injuries, this and that. So I'm always kind of, like, thinking, like, wow, I guess these guys aren't used to kind of the way it used to be with these guys kind of just getting thrown by the wayside. And even if they were injured, they weren't getting paid. And there's so many talent that, like, this was, like, a shocking and a jarring, these COVID release things. Like, like I'm not joking. When I came from the time as a talent where we called them Black Friday, every year we'd have a Friday. It was usually right after the, right before the Royal Rumble. 
where they would fire like 20 or 30 guys. It was just something that was a part of your annual process. You're just wondering like, well, this guy's probably going to go this year. And, oh, man, I haven't been using well the last six months. I'll probably go this year. Like, it was just a part of the annual process that, that I was familiar with. And when it happened, it wasn't anything new. Like, again, like in my stupid, you know, uh, circus animal wrestler brain, I was thinking like, man, I can't believe these guys don't have these Black Friday cuts anymore. That's amazing. Like, guys under contract for 10 to 15 years. They don't even get asked to come to the buildings anymore. Like, this is crazy. Like, I came from a time where it's like, oh, man, this guy's been at home for three weeks. He's probably going to get fired soon. Yeah, it's such a different time, uh, for sure. And I remember thinking, like, oh, like the WrestleMania cuts, you're right, right around the Ronald Rumble, if they were bringing in Hogan or, you know, Goldberg or somebody big, you knew a few guys were going to get released, and it was going to be part and of the Black Friday. And big, big guys, too, like Dudley Boys, Billy Gunn, like A-Train, like, it wasn't it wasn't guys that were, you know, developmental guys that have never been seen the light of day on television. It was just part of, just a, you know, that they just called it Black Friday. Black Friday, every like twenty wrestlers they get fired. So, for me, this being my first year back in WWE since I left, it kind of feels like nothing's changed. Process that I I know I was unfamiliar that for maybe the last ten years they haven't been doing it. But for me, every year I've been in WWE, they do it, so it kind of doesn't feel like anything different. Yeah, you definitely, you know, you took it in stride and definitely have a good attitude about it, which, which is well, I, And I, I, again, I say that now because I'm able to stay busy. I've been really fortunate that, you know, Impact had me come to work right away, and, and uh, Dave Marquez has brought me to those um, pay-per-views in Los Angeles, and the you know, MLW has kept me busy. So it, it's not – and another, another like, a, a much, much bigger piece about it is, like, there's almost, like, 300,000 Americans have died of – COVID and like, you know, a million and a half people around the globe have died of, of COVID. Like anytime I try to start and complain and whine a little bit about like, Oh, woe is me. This sucks. I got fired. Like it, I try and frame it that way. I'm like, if my mom or dad got COVID-19 tomorrow and died, I would not give a shit about wrestling. So it's kind of, it's kind of one of those situations where I just, as long as I keep the world right now in perspective, it's, you know, like I said, if, 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 someone I loved or cared about died of COVID tomorrow, I would not give a fuck about pro wrestling, you know? So mm-hmm. it's very hard for me to be bent out of shape about, you know, being let go. And also for me personally, I know I've said this a few times, like this is kind of my trajectory. Like every few years I, I quit or get fired and I pop up somewhere else. And then I get a couple of years and I quit or get fired and pop up somewhere else. So it doesn't, again, for me, it kind of feels nothing has felt out of the ordinary yet. Yeah, and you, like you said, with uh, Marquez and United Wrestling Network, you popped up there, part of the Primetime Live, the big UWN title tournament. That was a bit of a surprise, because originally you weren't announced for it, and then all of a sudden they bring you in. I mean, that was pretty cool, and it's nice to have some big names involved when they're doing these tournaments as well. Yeah, it worked out okay. I was actually supposed to wrestle for them. Uh, whatever the last event was, I think it was the 24th of November, and then something happened in the tournament where someone pulled out and um, uh, Aaron Stevens, uh, Damian Sandow, he, he books those shows. He called me up and he was just like, hey, man, like, I just lost uh, the guy in the tournament. You want to do it? And, and, I, and I, I wasn't available one of the dates. He goes, okay, we'll use you on these two and then we'll job you out. And then, and then you hmm. can take that week off and then come back for your week you originally booked for. And it worked out okay. And it was actually really, for me personally, it was great that, I have never wrestled in front of no people my entire career. Even 
the worst show I've ever done in my life had 10, 15, 25 people in the crowd, you know, like I'd never wrestled literally like in an empty building. So it was really cool to be able to just have that, you know, something to put on the resume that I've kind of done a few times now and I kind of have an understanding of it a little bit. And I was even luckier to have like awesome opponents like, you know, Rocky Romero and Mike Bennett and like Eddie Edwards and stuff, guys that have done this a few times already or guys that were such pros that, you know, we, we could kind of feel it out together how to, how to do it. Whereas maybe if I had less experienced wrestlers, it might have been difficult for me to learn the pace and the tempo of wrestling without any sort of crowd reaction. It's got to be weird because, you know, the wrestlers normally feed off the energy of the crowd. So it's like a completely different volume. Where do you kind of get the feel for the match and the energy from? Is this just all kind of in your head as you're going through and, and putting the match together? That's, that's the hard part for me is I don't, I don't feel natural. I am in my head very much. Whereas when I wrestle in front of an audience, like a lot of it, I can just do on autopilot from, from doing it for years and years and years. But like, I've noticed when I wrestle in front of no crowd, when I do something, like I can feel myself thinking in my head, okay, did the audience at home, you know, has commentary had enough time to explain to the audience at home what just happened? And if so, can I move forward? Whereas with, uh, when you're wrestling with an audience, you do something and you hear the yay, and then when the, when the yay kind of dies down to a quiet rumble, then you, okay, it's time to move forward. Do your next thing, yay, and then when the A comes down, okay, time to move forward. So, like, it's kind of, like, it's a, it's a little bit more in my head, but I've been getting better and better at it. The part that, that sucks the most is, like, it hurts a lot more. Like, I never realized how much of the audience pop or crowd reaction can make the wrestling ring hurt a lot less. So that thing is stiff. That's the thing where it's, like, sometimes the crowd kind of makes you forget about the pain or the adrenaline rush of the crowd or the pop of the crowd Right, and then it's not there. You're almost like, oh man, like my back's killing me, my legs killing me. Oh man, like yeah, starting and, and, to feel the bumps. And I, it hurts like fuck. And also like the, the, I feel like a little bit of the magic is gone. Like everything can be acceptable or like good enough, but it's really hard for anything to be great right now without. Even if the material they're doing or the content or whatever the talent is doing is great, it just doesn't feel great because you don't have that electricity from the audience. Like. And I'll give you an example. The Elimination Chamber, the last one, where like the last two was Kofi Kingston and, and Brian Danielson before uh, they went to their WrestleMania match. That wasn't that WrestleMania thing wasn't supposed to happen. The electricity from that, like them being the last two in the Elimination Chamber, was arena in Houston. I literally couldn't watch it on the monitor anymore. It was so electric. I walked out to the crowd and I watched from behind the curtain. I wanted to feel like you literally feel vibration kind of like when you're standing in front of a speaker at a concert, you feel the vibration of the crowd reaction when something's rumbling. I'm like, I, you know, I don't get reactions like that anymore. So I tried to steal pops from the other guys. I went out there. I wanted to get the goosebumps <laughs> and feel that. But I'm saying without that electricity, that whole Kofi mania run would not have happened. The next SmackDown, Kevin Owens would have come back and Kevin Owens and Daniel Bryan would have wrestled at WrestleMania. And it might've been good. It might've been bad. It might've been indifferent. Probably would have been great audience that electricity made coffee mania happen and as we know that turned out fucking amazing quite a memorable moment and i think uh daniel bryan obviously everyone always says about kofi but you got to look at the other side too i mean he did a hell of a oh, job man. I, getting I say kofi that all the spot. time i say that all the time what an amazing heel he was and what 
I don't know who came up with that seed of the long form storytelling of of uh, Daniel calling him a B plus player and all that shit. But that was like a, such a beautiful layer to add to it. Like it, it was, it was just it was probably some of the that was something that Road Dog was fantastic at, and I think you'll see from when he was running SmackDown, Road Dog was fantastic at riding the momentum of what the people were feeling. Whatever the audience was going so somewhere, no matter what the plan was, Road Dog would just go abort. Let's go with this. This is this is what's hot right now. And like that happened with Becky Lynch, and that happened with AJ Styles when he was world champion, and that happened with Kofi. Like Road Dog was so good, probably because he was a performer that relied on the audience's momentum most of his career. He only had two or three moves. He would tell you, he'd be the first person to tell you he's not like a catch catch can technician in the ring, but he was over and he could feel the audience's reactions and momentum. And I think he could feel that with talent too. And he knew like, Hey, this, this, this rumbling that's coming for Becky Lynch. This is, this is lightning. Let's put it in the bottle or, Hey, this momentum behind Kofi Kingston right now. Like I know we discussed Kevin Owens, but, but this is the, this, let's bottle this lightning right now. He was really good at, at running with uh, when something was clicking or just being confident enough to abort the plan to go with what he feels. Yeah, it's so important too. Well, obviously, when the when the crowd is really there, that, that's so important, and that is something that kind of is missing just big time. I know it's obvious, and it's one of the things like, oh, obviously, but it's it's that energy that the crowd gives you, and the almost unexpected, unpredictable stuff that that, that gets over. It's like you almost didn't see it coming. That's the kind of stuff I miss too, because now you, you just don't have that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and the, and the talent don't feel it either. Like, I'm, I'm, there's there's times where when something's working and something's going good and the audience is on fire, like, as a talent, that will amp you up and get your adrenaline pumping and your performance will be on a level that you wouldn't be able to do if the crowd is quiet. So I just don't know if opportunities like that are, are coming up anymore. Like, it was something I thought going into uh, Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, like, the electricity behind Drew McIntyre was awesome. And I feel like it's an unfortunate scenario that all the stuff he's doing right now is, is without the audience behind them because that electricity he was having when, you know, he booted uh, Lesnar out of the rumble or, or when he was, uh, they had some episodes of raw where he just come out and play more in like 10 times. And the people were just loving it. Like that extra electricity just not just true, just isn't there. I think nobody has that tool in their toolbox right now. That tool's been put away until who knows when. And it makes me think back to April of 2005. I'm at Madison Square Garden. You're wrestling Shawn Michaels. Hassan, obviously, Muhammad Hassan is with you. You guys are beating the crap out of Shawn Michaels. And then the absolute roof blows off of Madison Square Garden when Hulk Hogan makes his return. I can't even imagine doing that and having no fans there. I mean, that was no, just totally. deafening. Exactly. You know, that was deafening. That was just un- one of those unbelievable moments. As a fan, I'll never forget him. He's like, holy crap, Hulk is back. It was, it, was, it was unbelievable. It was something that I've never had this happen before or know if it has happened to other people before, but I came back from the, um, from the segment, and there was this, like, gray like clumpy shit in my hair and I was trying to figure what the fuck it was. The pop in Madison Square Garden was so big that like dust was falling off the rafters and like clumps of like lint or dust or whatever was the vibrations of the people's crowd reaction to that shit falling from the ceiling was in my hair. I was like, wow, this is ridiculous. Oh man, it was awesome. I I was there with my buddy and his uncle and uh, his nephew were, were there as well. 
And it was just one of those things where it's like, holy crap, he's an older guy at, at this point. And it was like, man, I haven't heard something like this since the Beatles. And he was putting his fingers in his ears because it was so loud. <laughs> I was like, wow, what a pop. Like, holy crap. And probably the stuff I've done with Hulk has been like, you wouldn't believe it until you experienced it. No matter how many wrestlers would tell me like, dude, Hogan's pops are so big, the fucking Justice Hall from the Raptors would be like, yeah, right. Like, every wrestler gets popular, gets a big pop, but being able to be in those situations firsthand with the guy, you're like, wow, this is, this is next level stuff. Or even like a couple times I got to work with Cena, like just seeing like, there's a dip, there's a, there's a difference between like a main event guy and like the face of the company. A lot, a lot of main event guys get great crowd reactions, but then once in a while when you're lucky enough to work with the face of the company, like a John Cena or a Roman Reigns or a Steve Austin or whatever, then you're kind of like, oh man, there, there really is another level you know, one out from main event guy. Oh, yeah, and you've definitely had your fair share of moments, especially with the Hulkster. I mean, you think about WrestleMania 21. You think about, obviously, that that time at Madison Square Garden. I mean, does that kind of stuff, like, keep with you forever? It's like, wow, this is a special, special moment in wrestling history. Uh, not not the actual, like, stuff. Like, to, to be honest, like, I, my memory, I have, like, a like floating five-year window of memory. Like, after, like, five years, I kind of can't really... Like anything prior to 2015 is kind of like, it's, oh yeah, I think that happened. It's kind of like cloudy memory. But, but one thing that is awesome about that is through just that WrestleMania and that program with Hulk, like we've, we've got to know each other and kind of be friends. And like, he's literally a guy in the arena. I can walk up to go, yo, Hulk, say, what's up, man? We'll high five, we'll hug, we'll bullshit, we'll chit chat. Like to be able to do stuff. Like I don't have that. Like every time I see Rick Flair, it's a, hi, sir, how are you? Good to see you again, you know, type thing because I've never had the opportunity to work with the player where, you know, you could become friendly like that. So more, more than any memory I have or any, any piece of business about, you know, the, the, what we did, like, it's just super cool that, you know, whenever I was like at TNA or seeing it like a signing or whenever Hulk would come around this past year, I was working with WWE, just be able to, Oh, Hulk, what's up, man? You know, go sit out of beers at the bar after the show or something. That is awesome to kind of have that relationship and friendship with, yeah. you, know, you know, one of the guys that he considered one of the all-time greats, if not the all-time great. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, he's not a – I'm the perfect age to be, like, a Hulkamaniac. You know, like, I was, I was born in 1984, so, like, I, I was his demo his entire career. Even today, even today, I'm a 36-year-old man. I'm the perfect Hulk Hogan because I have a T-shirt. That is really cool. And, and you have a bunch of moments with the Hulkster. Think about Backlash the tag match, uh, HBK yeah. and Hogan against you and Hassan. I mean, I hope you remember that one. That, that That's a good one, yeah. too, and, and quite a memory. No, I mean, like, it's, like, I do remember it, but, like, now my memory of it is, like, the footage. Like, I, I've seen the, you know, I have the DVD of it, and I've seen the match, and now, like, whenever I think about it, I just see the footage in my head. Like, I just can't, I can't really remember it anymore from my eyeballs, what I saw. The only thing I just remember was, was cool was, um, Hulk would always, anytime he would show up, he always would have like a case of Bud Light under his arm, like a 24 pack. He would just go sit in Hulk's locker room and it was like me, him, Pat Patterson, Muhammad, and Sean. He'd sit down and he'd just keep handing you beers. He'd drink it and you'd talk about the match and you'd finish one. He would just hand you another one. It's like the whole time he just needed, that was like the only like memory I have. Speaking of Pat Patterson, unfortunately, you know, he just passed away. Um, not that long ago, and just kind of, were you close with him at all? Was he around that much at that period? Because it seems like he was in and out at that period and coming maybe maybe for Hulkster or maybe coming for Shawn Michaels, but it seemed like he was only dealing with certain guys at certain times at that point. Yeah, so when I was there as talent, he was around full-time. 
And then shortly after I started, he like retired for the first time. Uh, and then maybe like six months later, he was back. It was like whatever Taboo Tuesday was, like he retired at Taboo Tuesday, like the first one. And then by WrestleMania that year, he was back. Uh, so that, so I do remember like we had a bunch of interactions and stuff. And again, he was, he was a main event agent. So like anytime I got to do stuff with like Hulk or HBK, uh, Pat Patterson would be a part of it if he was there. And if he wasn't, it was Michael Hayes or anytime I got to do stuff with like Undertaker, like big pay-per-view stuff, you know, Pat Patterson and Michael Hayes would be on it together. Like, I guess one of my favorite stories is how smart Pat Patterson is. Um, the first Punjabi prison match that we actually didn't even end up doing because of like a, a blood test didn't come back in time. But the first Punjabi prison match, they set up the thing in a sound stage about 50 miles away from the arena the day before. So we could go like rehearse it and stuff. Cause there wasn't going to be an opportunity to do it at the building. And then they had it set up. Nobody'd seen it. Like Dusty Rhodes just kind of scratched out a piece of paper and they went and built it. Like we didn't know what it was. They cage with another cage with like little doors on the little cage and, nothing on the big cage and whatever. And we didn't really advertise what it was because we didn't know what it was. So as we're sitting there talking about it, putting it together, we're just kind of like befuddled. Like, what do we do with this thing? Like Pat comes up to us. He goes, what if there's a rule that like every minute, one of these doors opens, like the little doors on the cage that's around the ring. And then once the 60 seconds is up, the door shuts and that, that cage doesn't open anymore. And that way we can get in and out of it two or three times. So the last time, uh, the last door comes up, Kali throws Undertaker back in the ring, the fourth door shuts, and we have our first false finish. And I was going, wow, this is incredible. This guy just made up a set of rules to a match that doesn't exist just to go around the world and cross the street to create a false finish. Like, my brain would never have been able to come up with that. Yeah, everyone always says, like, genius-level stuff. Like, he had such a great mind for wrestling. It's it's crazy because, you know, you call in the guy who's retired, and you're like, hey, can you help us uh, put together a, a main event match? Yeah, sure. And then he just puts it together. I mean, pretty remarkable stuff. It's definitely genius-level thinking. Yeah, and then, like, this last year that I was working with WWE as a producer, he came by a couple times, but you could see that he was really getting on an age, and, and a long TV day wasn't easy for him. So I would probably say the last, 18 months I was working with WAB. I saw him two or three times. I was really lucky. One time we got to go have dinner at the hotel together and chit-chat and stuff. I didn't know it would be the last time we had a conversation or dinner together, but it was nice to, it was nice to see him. And it was also, it was also a little bit difficult to see him because you could tell that like he, he was a really funny and switched on guy and he was always cracking jokes and making people laugh and stuff. I remember he, it just, he wasn't like that anymore. You know, he just was very much, seemed like an older man who was having, you know, a little bit difficulty with his basic like mental functions as far as remembering where we are, what we were doing and stuff. So it was a little, it was a little, it was a little difficult. Maybe people have seen over the years that decline a little bit, but for me to last see him in 2008 and he was laughing and joking and whatever, whatever. And the next time I saw him to see him a little confused at, you know, just what was going on or ordering food was, was kind of difficult to see. Yeah, I remember seeing him at an autograph signing. Seemed a, a little out of it, not really out of it, but not his same sharp self that I've seen him at other signings before. So obviously, you know, age and stuff like that play plays a big part. As he was seventy nine, so I mean, he was getting up there for sure. Yeah. As far as kind of some other things that come to mind when I think about you and your career, it's just like, wow, you and Muhammad Hassan had something really special together—a great chemistry, great gimmick. But was it almost? 
too controversial is one of those things. Obviously, the pressure of it from from definitely uh, TV and, and media and different sources put extra pressure. But did you feel it when it was going on? Like, wow, we're on to something here. It's really kind of touching people um, in, in a controversial way. I knew it was good, like, while we were doing it. Like, I knew, you know, I could, I could just tell like, when wrestling is good. I was a fan, you know, before I got in the business. I could tell when, when this is good material and the people are into it. You know, so I, I always knew it was good. At the time, I never felt like it was bad or distasteful at all because I'm, maybe I was a little less, um, maybe I had a little, little less broader perspective of, like, other people and stuff now. And maybe it's just the way to do with the current white guys, the people being more sensitive of, of how hurtful words can be or how, how things can, you know, what you say or what you do can have an effect on other people. Today, some stuff I feel a little bit bad about or maybe if I was in my 36-year-old 2020 brain today asked to do some of the stuff, I might have a different way of doing it or suggesting it. Like, I don't even like, I don't even do the teal, you know, Middle Eastern foreigner act anymore. Like, I don't, I don't touch any of it. I don't cut promos and Farsi or nothing. Like, I just kind of feel the business has moved past it and it doesn't work anymore. That was kind of my justification of it is, is it worked. Like I would, I would go out there and I'd be a Middle Eastern heel, and it would get, I would be the hottest heel on on the card, or I'd get the most booze out of everyone else, anyone else working that night. But there was a time I, I noticed, like around 2013, 2014, I just didn't have as much heat as I used to. I think the world got a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more tolerant, and just because someone was from Iran or had a name like Navari or wore a turban on their head, people just didn't feel the need to boo them or, or dislike them for that reason. So I've kind of stopped doing the act. Um, but as far as then at the time, it, it fit in with the product and, and there wasn't nearly as much naysaying as there, there would be today. And, and maybe it's because there wasn't a platform for people to naysay, or maybe, maybe in 2005, people were more apt to bite their tongue when they saw them and that bothered them versus today. But uh, you know, at the time, it didn't bother me, but today, obviously it wouldn't work. And even if I was asked by somebody to do it, if it felt insensitive or distasteful, I probably would decline or, or provide them an alternative of something better. They always say like the internet and, you know, maybe they're dirt cheat and stuff like that, that you were more comfortable in the role than Muhammad Hassan was comfortable in the role. Is that actually true? I don't know. I don't know about comfortable, but there definitely was more for me to tap into. Like as far as being like a method performer, like it wasn't, it wasn't anything that uh, Mark dealt with, but there was definitely a decline in, I don't want to say my quality of life, but I would just say after 9-11, like, it was very evident to me that I was a minority, whereas prior to 9-11, like, being Middle Eastern in America, like, you were such a small percentage of minority, you're almost, like, negligible. Like, if you weren't Asian, Mexican, or Black, you were kind of a negligible margin that no one even really paid attention to. But I definitely noticed after 9-11, like, oh, man, I'm totally a minority in America, and a lot of people don't seem to be comfortable with me around and like the idea of me being here. Uh, so, so like in promos and like in content and stuff that we're doing on CD, I might have had a little bit more to tap into to Mark. But I thought Mark did a fantastic job for being an Italian guy uh, portraying Muhammad Hassan. I mean, he did such a good job at, at you know the wrong guy killed. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, man, I don't know if I've heard of too many instances of that happening where it's like, wow, this thing got so over, they had to pull the plug. Like you never hear that kind of stuff. Yeah, like I guess it was just a, it was just a bad opportunity, bad timing, bad. It was just like a bad luck scenario. It was one of those things where you, 
every once in a while you spin the roulette reel and it comes up double zeros and there's nothing you can do about it. And they did the thing, you know, carried off like a martyr. I mean, that was very controversial. The the terrorist angle the day of the, the London bombing obviously did not go over well at all. So there was definitely one of those things where it's like, man, there was just all this stuff happening at once. And the timing of it didn't match up to what the B was willing to, you know, take as far as just um, criticism and, and just that controversy. I feel like, man, like that could have been something, but the timing, I guess, wasn't there. Yeah, it, it was just bad luck. Like, if we did that exact angle a week before, you know, like, it would have been completely under the radar and in the realm of this is a type of scripted content that WWE creates. But just the horrible timing of the, uh, well, it's called like the 7 7 bombings in London, or 7 7 terrorist attacks in London. Uh, like, it was just, just bad, bad timing. And I don't know what, I, I say it all the time, I don't know what the solution was. I don't think WWE would have called the network and say, hey, Yank SmackDown, you're going to have a two-hour empty block tonight. I don't know that there was even a conversation that they had, and the network said, ah, don't worry about it. You know, I, I don't know these things. I don't know if there's a conversation, you know, about any of it at all. Maybe it just completely slipped through everybody's fingers, you know, through red tape, red tape, red tape, and it never got to a solution. I, I, I really don't know what happened. But, again, like I said, it's one of the – I've been, been in the wrestling business so long, but I said, like, Oh, there's another thing that went shitty. Like, what's, what's the next? What's the next thing? You know, like it's just the way the wrestling business has gone for the past 20 years. That you just keep moving forward, and nothing, nothing that stains you today has to carry with you tomorrow. As long as you just keep moving forward and reinventing yourself. And at Great American Bash, they literally kill off the character. I mean, Hassan is is you know basically killed off. And you know, he's kind of done for a while with wrestling. And you'll go down, I guess, to DSW and, uh, and OVW and stuff and kind of come back as the Sheik Davari character, which is kind of more of a manager type. Was that a hard adjustment? You know, now you're going to be – I know you were a manager before with Hassan, but now they kind of want you to be a manager for you know, Mark Henry and Kurt Angle and Kali. Was that kind of a different adjustment for you? Not, not really. Like it was – because I was doing it with Mark and I was like wrestling on a house show still like it, once, once you're like a on camera talent, it all kind of feels the same. Like just going to the arena for a day of TV. If you're just a manager cutting a promo or if you're a wrestler having a match or you're a general manager having to talk or you're a ring announcer having to interview somebody in the ring, like it's just, a, it just feels like a day of TV. It doesn't, it doesn't feel that much different uh, wrestling or, or doing the managing things. And like at the time we were doing so many house shows and then the house shows we were, like when I was working with Kali, we were always doing handicap matches because he was kind of very limited in the ring. Like it, it didn't, doing one day of TV and then three nights of house shows leading up to it, like it still felt very much like a wrestler. Just because, you know, it's literally on a four-day loop, only one day I wasn't wrestling. And through a lot of that, I mean, whether it be wrestling Undertaker or feuding with Undertaker, it seemed like that was a big part of your run there was a lot of Undertaker. What did you kind of think about him putting away, and do you have any good kind of Undertaker as that conscience, as that soul of WWE? Do you have any stories of, of him? Yeah, he was always super cool, and, and kind of the longer I've been in the wrestling business, the more, the more shocking it is how welcoming he was to, like, younger and newer guys. So I, I, I've always had a great relationship with them because the guys that I was working with that he was working with, he had great relationships with. So it, it might've been a totally different story if he didn't like me or, or he was a, 
older veteran guy that kind of didn't give a fuck about the new guys and, and, and didn't want any of them to succeed so he could be comfortable in his spot on top of the card. But he wasn't like that. He really, really wanted Collie to succeed. He really, really wanted Mark Henry to succeed. Like, it was it was super cool to be a part of him just pr- pretty much every night. Like, like I said, especially with Collie, like, I, we were doing most of the wrestling. Uh, Collie would just come in and beat him up in the middle, and then I would get Joe Flam last night, too. So, and everything, you know, the greatest hits in between 10 minutes. Hmm. Uh, but but no, he, he it was just like it was very shocking to see how cool he was, and now in hindsight, like how cool it was to have a time in his career where he would come out and party with us. And I know eventually he got older in life and he settled down in his relationships and stuff. But like my first couple of years in the business, like you go out after a show to like a nightclub or a bar somewhere, and like take your show up sometimes all night, take your show sometimes for like three minutes or five minutes, just make a cameo and disappear. It's cool. Anytime you'd show up, even if you'd show up for three minutes or 30 minutes or three hours or whatever, like at the end of the night, you're like, oh, where's the check? Like, oh, that tall, dark guy at the trench coat paid for it. Oh, damn. He would do it every night. Wow. What what a, uh, what a locker room leader. What a nice guy and what a good person. Yeah. So as we hit the wind down and head towards the finish, just got to know what's kind of on the horizon for you. What do you got coming up? I know producing and being a road agent for many different companies, MLW Impact is, is obviously on the table, but what else have you got going on? It's kind of funny, like this pandemic has made me kind of realize kind of what I should be doing next. Like I kind of feel like everything I'm doing now is like a holding pattern. And then hopefully when the pandemic is over, I can find the next thing I can kind of invest my heart and soul and everything into like one spot or one direction. But my deal has always kind of been the same. Like if there's a wrestling ring and a referee involved, like I'm in, I'm cool. I'll be there. Like I'm, I'm not really like a career professional wrestler. Like this isn't my job. Like it's kind of like my lifestyle It's who I am. So everything I do in my life, even on my days off, is kind of revolved in some way, shape or form around being a, a the wrestling business. So, like, I'll always be around, and whoever would like to have me, be it Impact Wrestling or MLW or Vince on Raw or SmackDown or Hunter at NXT or Cody at AEW, like, wherever, like, I'm available. I'm not a – I like to – I you know, I, I always looked up to Tommy Dreamer. I always call him, like, my wrestling dad, and I, I kind of hope to be the same guy like him. Like, I hope to be a friend of the business. I hope to be someone who's eager and excited to be a part of anywhere that feels like I have something to offer or contribute. That's kind of – like, I'm going to be wrestling anyway, so it's just pretty much up to the promoters to decide where it is. Like, I'll be, I'll be doing this regardless, so if a promoter wants me to do it in their house, it's, you know, like I said, is there a referee, is there a ring? I'm in. I love it. And as far as being a road agent and producer, do you see yourself stepping more away from the ring and more into a producer role, or you're open to both and you'd like to do both at the same time? I'm, I'm open to both. I'm open to whatever, but I'm definitely – have more long-term vested interest in the behind-the-scenes stuff. And I said, I'm like in the wrestling business. I'm still pretty young. I'm 36 now. Uh, it just seems like I'm older because I've been, you know, been on TV since I was like 19. But like, I, I definitely do. I'm very aware that around 40 years old is the beginning of the wind-down process, and I'm just a few years away from that. So if I'm looking at my next five years in the wrestling business, I'm not too concerned about it. I'm sure I'll be wrestling or I could be producing or coaching or whatever, but I am also long-term macro looking to the, okay, let's say 10 years from now when I'm 46, what do I want to be doing? Cause I don't think it should be wrestling. Now, do you want to make a WWE return or is it something that, you know, it would be nice if it happened. 
Is it something you want to happen, or is it one of those things where it's like, man, you know, I, I free reign. I work for MLW Impact. You know, uh, it could be AEW. You know, all over the place. Is WV a big option for you, or, or it's one of those th- things that's nice if it happens? No, I mean, it's cool. if it happens, it's cool. Like I'm still in communication with, with a lot of the people there, like a regular basis, even if it's just like chit chat or bullshit or just you know Johnny Ace staying in touch with everyone. He had to let go uh, over over the you know pandemic stuff like I, I really I don't think they know what their future looks like so it's really hard for them to decide what they want to do I, I think everybody is kind of in a holding pattern if Scott Demore wants me full time exclusively at Impact and he makes me a, a contract offer like I'd be totally happy at Impact Wrestling if if Vince wants me in Raw or SmackDown or Hunter wants me in NXT I'd be totally happy there if, if Delirious wants me in Ring of Honor I'd be totally happy there I'm not a I, I'm I'm one of those getting where you fit in kind of wrestlers. I'm not as calculated and planned as like I'd like to go here to do this to accomplish that to get here to my next place. I'm always more of a what do you guys need? What are you missing? What what where where would you see me plugged in to help your show out? And then so and so promoter says I think you could help us out here or there in that department and. And if I agree with them and it seems like a plausible idea, like I'm in. That is a great attitude. It seems like, you know, with everything going on, you've definitely been able to keep and maintain that great attitude. It seems like you definitely have a lot of opportunities and a lot of places to go, which is very, very nice to see in this crazy, unpredictable world we now live in. Like you just said, man, it's so crazy and unpredictable that every time, and of course everyone gets down on themselves every once in a while over, whatever situation, be it fired or be it having to stay indoors so much or whatever. But anytime I find myself trying to get a little bent out of shape about my like work situation, I just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like almost 300,000 people just in America have died. Like, Oh, so sad. Too bad. You don't get to go play, you know, dress up pro wrestling like you want to do since you were a little kid and get paid well for it. Like, boo hoo. You know, like it's really hard keeping in perspective of why the world is in the shape it is right now to be, like I said, bent out of shape about pro wrestling. If someone you know or love is sick with COVID and dying, like who gives a shit about sports entertainment, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. And of course, I want to also ask you about your plugs and all the social media and where everybody can kind of follow you and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, follow your adventure and see where you're doing and see where you're up to and where you're at next. It's funny, like, I kind of, I know it's, it's a horrible to, type of thing to be doing right now when I'm, like, not actively uh, under contract or exclusive to any one place, but I really don't do much of the social media stuff. It doesn't, for me personally, like, again, because I'm that shortstop player, it doesn't seem to offer much more for me other than an obligation of something to do. I know there's tons of wrestlers out there that their social media makes their career and stuff or it's how they communicate or find work or, or the relationship with their fans is why, you know, they're successful in what they do. But I've kind of found one of those things for a guy like me. It's got sort of feels like a vanity project. And, you know, it's, it's just not for me. I'm not, I don't feel totally comfortable just putting myself over because that's what you're supposed to do when you're, when you're building a brand. This is not for me. I get that is an interesting approach, especially in uh, 2020 when everyone's like. Yeah, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried it multiple times. That the suggestions, like, like I've, I've seen, like Colt Cabana has showed me how his social media and his engagement with his audience literally puts money in his pocket. I've seen, you know, uh, Xavier Woods, uh, you know, his social media outlets and stuff. His push and promotions literally just got him a, a show hosting on G4 TV. Like I totally know 
it's a tool that you could use to build your brand and career and stuff. But just knowing what I'm good at and knowing what a promoter needs out of me if they find me, it really doesn't. I, I, can't, I have yet to figure out the way that operating a social media puts more money in my pocket as a pro wrestler at the end of the day. Hey, you got to do what works for you, right? You, gotta, you do you, right? Uh, Sean's like to thank you uh, so much for all the time you gave us uh, tonight. And, and obviously, good luck everywhere because it seems like you've got options out the wazoo. So really, really just good luck. With <laughs> I, I hope it remains on. that, that exciting. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 ready for, I'm open for business. Yeah, let's hopefully uh, it stays that way. But uh, thank you uh, so much uh, for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. All right, and that's where I'll cut it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, man. Awesome okay, stuff. Okay, did you get everything you wanted? Yes, yes, awesome stuff. Okay, cool, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, dude. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.